Hello, and welcome to a special edition podcast from WIHI, Moving Upstream to Address the Quadruple Aim, featuring Dr. Rishi Manchanda. I'm Madge Kaplan, host and producer of WIHI and director of communications. WIHI is IHI's biweekly audio talk show. WIHI recorded Rishi Manchanda's remarks live on December 5, 2016 in Orlando, Florida at the Scientific Symposium held in conjunction with IHI's 28th Annual National Forum. Dr. Manchanda's presentation slides, which we highly recommend you download for reference as you are listening, can be found on IHI's website. Look on the homepage of IHI.org for a link to this WIHI program. That's where you'll also find more background information on Dr. Manchanda. Rishi Manchanda is president of Health Begins, an association that provides healthcare professionals and community partners with training and support to transform clinical care and the social determinants of health in order to achieve the triple aim. Dr. Manchanda is also chief medical officer of The Wonderful Company, a large self-insured employer committed to offering consumers high-quality, healthy brands. In his 2013 TED book, The Upstream Doctors, Dr. Manchanda introduced a new model of the healthcare workforce that includes upstreamists who improve social determinants of health. At the beginning of the podcast, Rishi Manchanda lays out his rationale for adding the aim of provider well-being and joy at work to the existing triple aim. As do some others, he calls this the quadruple aim. At the conclusion of Dr. Manchanda's remarks, there's a brief Q&A moderated by IHI's Chief Medical and Scientific Officer, Dr. Don Goldman. Here's Rishi Manchanda. The, the fundamental punchline of today, if anything, is if we care about the triple aim or the quadruple aim, as uh, has been recently proposed, uh, we need to understand and approach the social determinants with the same science of improvement, the same rigor uh, that we would expect uh, of any center of excellence uh, in South Central, in the VA, or in any healthcare setting across the country, particularly for those who serve the vulnerable. Uh, it's abundantly clear to me and to a growing number of colleagues on the front lines of healthcare that one way to achieve the quadruple aim is to move upstream. Building on the, the triple aim, what, what IHI has um, done such a remarkably effective job at, at promulgating and putting out there, I, I just want to introduce uh, the, the quadruple aim. You know, Tom Bodenheimer and Chris Sinsky and others have recently introduced this fourth aim of provider experience. And as a primary care provider, I just want to indicate you know, how happy I am that that's in there as well. Um, because if you don't have happy providers, it's hard to expect um, the other three outcomes to move. Uh, meaningfully or certainly sustainably over time. So as we look at those four aims, uh, it's important also to, I think, reflect on the deeper sea, <laughs> or um, the, the deeper context around it, the sea of blue here, the questions of equity. And, and the way I try to make sense of this, in the world that we inhabit in healthcare as a healthcare provider, what does it mean for me as I try to spin those plates of the, the four aims? As I try to, as a health system leader and as a provider, as I try to think about how to balance all of those competing aims, um, what does that mean against the deeper context of people's lives when it comes to decision-making, not just in the exam room, but in the community, and when it comes to fairness, structural opportunity? Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot since November the 8th about this question, <laughs> and um, perhaps for reasons that you too have been thinking about this. On the one hand, we've come to a moment of incredible opportunity. You know, the, the drivers that have led to a moment around social determinants to be discussed in this format have been, A, a shift in, towards value, away from volume, and that itself has propelled a greater appreciation, certainly among a broader audience of folks, about the importance of not just biological and psychological, but social determinants, and an acknowledgement of the growing body of evidence around social determinants of health beyond the traditional kind of biomedical ones. It's an incredible time of opportunity, and, and I was looking at this um, as someone who is an evangelist of this, of this sense of moving upstream uh, with great promise and hope. Where we are right now, I think, in the last month uh, is mixed now, uh, that, that hope is mixed with great uncertainty. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't speak to this, at least in, in the time that you've allowed me here. I'm uncertain. I think many of us who are thinking, uh, committed to improving a culture of health, as RWJ talks about, or in whatever framework we, we use to describe our goals, whatever our vision of health is, 
of health and healthcare improvement, I think we have to acknowledge that there's deep uncertainty about certain core principles and achievements that have been made, especially over the past eight years. I think there's three ways that we can move forward at a high level. Um, one is I, I th there's a way for us to, to address what clearly came up through a really um, embattled election process that I think touched everybody in this room and uh, around the country, which revealed that there are a lot of vulnerable populations who are experiencing isolation. And that isolation might be defined as social isolation or political isolation. Uh, largely, it's economic isolation. What does it mean for us to actually start to acknowledge that there is a deep sense of isolation and that isolation is happening in different geographies, rural to urban, um, racial uh, dividing lines as well? I think one of the things that we can do is to think more deeply about what it means to take our traditional economic, cultural, social institutions, our service providers themselves, healthcare and social service agencies, and think about those institutions as touch points for improving civil society, to engage those folks who feel um, left out by the institutions that see them, that see them primarily as beneficiaries of services rather than as co-creators of health. So I, th I think there's an opportunity here. I won't spend my time today talking too much about that, but there's a deep opportunity here to transform our approaches, our institutions, into uh, civil society institutions, not just service providers, not just cultural institutions. I think the second point here about increasing performance management is something that... Uh, let me just sum up what this bullet point is, which, which is I think we need a Don Berwick for social services, right? And maybe Don Berwick is a Don Berwick for social services. Right. In, in terms of performance management and human capa capital development right now in areas of education and transportation and public health sectors writ large, what we have had the opportunity to do because of incredible leadership and resources in healthcare has been to move the needle in terms of uh, what the science and the rigor of improvement is. But when you reach across the walls of healthcare to talk to a social service provider that may have as much if not more insight into a patient or a patient population that you share or try to improve outcomes for. When you reach out to them and ask them to share data, for instance, oftentimes they'll say, sure, let me get my post-it notes or my Excel spreadsheet and see what I can do for you. There, meanwhile, we have an abundance and growing abundance of technology solutions and data sharing mechanisms and language that allows us to speak quickly about the science of improvement. I, th I think there's an opportunity here, regardless of what happens uh, in the next four years and beyond, to improve performance management capabilities and uh, help be a force multiplier for the upstream sector. I think IHI has a vital role to play in that regard. Um, the science of improvement and the thought leadership that IHI can provide in, in going towards health and not just healthcare, I think is a profound opportunity. Uh, and the, this third point is something that I want to focus on today, which is um, looking at waste. Y you know, as we, as we look at and as we engage in what is inevitably going to be a rebalancing of healthcare and social service spending, and I'm not necessarily saying the rebalancing is going to be good. But certainly I think we can acknowledge that given the lopsided investment in health care as a nation compared to social services, some rebalancing is probably required. So whether it's beneficial or malevolent, when rebalancing occurs, I think there's an opportunity for us to make sure that we're acknowledging how much waste exists uh, when those silos don't operate in tandem, when, they, when we don't work across sectors. The gentleman that you see seated in this picture is Mr. M, Mr. Martin. He's, he's given us permission to share his name. I'm just going to call him Mr. M. Mr. M um, uh, is a remarkable man. He um, joined the military in 1974, the Army. Uh, he committed his life to work, first in the military and then in the uh, civilian sector, um, and has done a remarkable amount of work for many years in trying to uh, make ends meet for his family and uh, enjoy a productive career. About four years ago, something happened to Mr. Martin, to Mr. M. Um, he collapsed at, on the job, and a coworker uh, called the paramedics and they rushed him to the hospital. And he was found to be that close to a diabetic coma. Uh, he was stabilized while he was in the hospital, and uh, in the subsequent kind of workup, it was clear that his diabetes, uh, that he had been diagnosed with several years earlier, had really gone untreated um, effectively. And it's important to understand that um, if we were to look at this scenario, a patient in a hospital due to a you know, close encounter with a diabetic coma, certainly a, a bad outcome, is, how do we improve the, um, outcomes for this patient and maybe prevent something like that to happen? If we ask 
that set of questions, we have to understand the context of Mr. M's life. Around the time that he collapsed, a few things were happening. First, his family relationships were fraying. Um, there was a divorce pending. Uh, he was lagging at work. Uh, he was having a hard time because of some depression that was manifesting pretty deeply uh, at being effective at work. Ultimately, he actually lost his job. Uh, he started doubling up on couches, crowding, you know, um, couch surfing with friends, and ultimately lived uh, in a van on the streets of Los Angeles. And because of that, because he ended up living in a van on the streets of Los Angeles, um, the Maslow's hierarchy became well-defined. You know, food and shelter were top priorities, and so he looked for a hot and a cot, uh, where it's easily accessible in many parts of Los Angeles and in the country, which is an emergency department. Not the first place you think of in terms of food services and shelter, but obviously something that we can all attest to. So he became a high utilizer of the emergency department of this particular hospital in Los Angeles. And the challenge that myself, myself and the team that we had put together to, 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 to care for Mr. M were given was you know, achieve the quadruple aim. It was the triple aim at that point, but we said that we're gonna, we want to be happy doing this work as well if we can. And it was difficult. It was difficult to make sure that we could get you know, Mr. M to his uh, mental health appointments, to get um, him someplace stable to store his insulin um, because he didn't have a fridge. Right? There was, it, it was challenging to connect all the dots for him. And this is within the VA where there is actually a large number of resources within the umbrella of the institution itself, health and healthcare related. But it was challenging. And we could feel ourselves getting tired, uh, fatigued in addressing this. Still aiming for the quadruple aim, but feeling like we were falling short. What helped us to actually turn the corner was the addition of somebody here um, who you can see in the checkered shirt there on the other side of the screen from Mr. M. Uh, that's John Killerin. John is a public interest lawyer. And John um, works for uh, a law firm that at the point we started this partnership was um, actively suing our hospital. Just want to repeat that fact. Um, we brought a lawyer into a healthcare setting from a law firm that was suing us. Um, I've learned a lot of skills in my career so far, but that was a challenge, learning how to make that pitch. But we did it primarily because it was, uh, it, it was common sense. When you look at the top 10 unmet needs of this patient population, of p folks like Mr. M, who lack a home, um, the top 10 needs aren't you know, housing specifically. They're actually legal needs. The unmet needs are legal. Mr. M, for instance, had five uh, jaywalking uh, citations, uh, some of which turned into some fines. Those fines went unpaid. Those unpaid fines turned into a failure to appear. Um, uh, he, he had legal challenges stacking up against him. Um, he had lost his driver's license. It expired, and he didn't have the wherewithal to reapply for it. Um, he was without a home. And so he couldn't, he just had challenges to get stable employment and housing. So we brought a lawyer in to help address those unmet legal needs, and with a cohort of 140 patients just like Mr. M, including Mr. M, we had a seven to one return on investment. For $525 of fixed costs uh, associated with this project from the VA and from our public interest law firm, we recouped $3,500 of direct economic cash benefits for each of those veterans. That does not include the reduction the cost savings from the reductions in ER use, which was about 34% for this cohort, pre-post. That does not include the benefits accrued to um, seen in the criminal justice system because of fewer encounters with the jails. It, it doesn't include all the things that, of course, that, that we would care about at a system level, but just looking at what that $3,500 meant for Mr. M meant a world of difference. That stable income month over month meant stability, meant the ability after clearing those jaywalking tickets with a lawyer's help, not the doctor, it meant Mr. M was actually on the path to stable housing, and I'm happy to report uh, that's what happened for him. This, for me, is the quadruple aim, right? For Mr. M and for that cohort, we improved outcomes. We reduced costs uh, of care uh, related to it. The patient experience was remarkable. Mr. M, there's a video that I'll share with you guys if you're interested, of Mr. M just talking about his experience. It is the most heart-soaring uh, and breaking story you'll, you'll hear directly from him. And the fourth aim of the providers, those in the room there, from the clerk... The, uh, you can see there the clerk, the LVN, the PA, the physician assistant, and the lawyer in that room along with Mr. M. And they're actually huddling with the patient, which was a standard part of our care model. Patient huddle, not just team huddles. They were joyful at work. 
we had got a glimpse of what it is to have magic in a bottle. Right? I know from firsthand experience for Mr. M and others that part of the way that we can achieve the quadruple aim and grab that the moment is by moving upstream. In other words, by bringing in, if required, a lawyer to address unmet legal needs, or bringing in the set of resources that can address unmet social and legal needs. It's just common sense. And frankly, to put it more to put in starker terms, it is a higher standard of care. And to do anything less, what I tell my colleagues in healthcare as practitioners, is to do anything less than a biopsycho and social model of care that moves upstream is actually substandard. And in this nation, spending as much as we do uh, it's remarkable that we spend as much as we do and get mediocrity, right? The current standard of care is not good enough. And I think moving towards a higher standard of care requires us to move upstream. So the upstream parable is something that you know, I've alluded to in, in my telling of the story. Uh, and I think it's important to kind of retell the stories of what we expect of ourselves before we move forward with science and staffing and solutions. The story matters. Um, it creates a set of opportunities to reimagine. Here's my telling of the story. There are three friends who approach the banks of a river. Um, it's a beautiful scene, yes? Um, but unfortunately, it's pierced by the sounds of people in the water. There are children, adults, the elderly in the water right now, and they're having a hard time uh, keeping their heads above water. They're drowning, and they're crying out for help. So those three friends do, we'll do a little interactive exercise here. Those three friends will do what I imagine all of you would do, right? What's, what do we do? Should we evaluate what's happening? You're going to jump right in. We're going to jump right in and save those people, yes? It's what all of us do in, in, at a large level in terms of health care and in social services. We help. So the three friends jump right in, and the first friend says, yeah, I'm a really strong swimmer. I'm going to go to the edge of the waterfall here. I'm going to save those who are drowning in dire straits. Now, the rest of us have now kind of aligned along the banks of the river, yes? And we see what's happening over here, and what do we say to this downstream rescuer? Do we applaud this person? The coffee hasn't kicked in yet. This is a, uh, these are easy. I'm going to pimp you guys with easy questions. <clears throat> it's not going to be difficult. Yeah, exactly. What we do and what we've collectively done, of course, is to say to the downstream rescuer, whether you're a trauma surgeon, the ER nurse, the ICU attending, wh whoever you are in that system, if you're saving that person's life, of course it makes sense to give you more resources. And we've effectively done that um, in uh, intended, way, intended and unintended ways. The second friend, though, uh, who's there in the water says, wait, I'm going to swim a little bit further upstream. I'm going to coordinate the branches along here and build a raft and usher more people to safety. And in doing so, I'll help my downstream rescuer friend uh, while providing more stability, more continuity, more coordination <laughs> to those, the folks on that raft so that we can, again, uh, prevent them from being in need of rescue. So that's the era we're in right now. Paul Grundy um, has referred to this type of worker as the comprehensivist, right? It's the primary care clinician. It's the PCMH. We are in the era of the comprehensivist right now. And uh, those of us who have now amassed along the banks of the river, do we agree this is a good idea too? So now the 100% of resources that were previously going towards our downstream rescue, how much of that do you want to give to our, our sister raft builder? Popcorn it. Throw out a number. How much of that? 50%? 20%? 5? 80%? This is an auction house. Call it a number here. Well, 80%. Well, this audience is certainly much more health policy oriented than many others. I've heard people say, oh, 10%, 50%. But the point is we give more resources to that raft builder. And of course, the question is how much. And I think it's, it's um, irrefutable, speaking as a primary care clinician, that we need 80% is minimum. Um, I'm biased. Uh, but something happens to those two friends. Over time, they see that there's a third friend, right, that came here. Now, before they look for the third friend, something is happening psychologically to those two friends in the water, to the raft builder and the rescuer. They're getting tired. They're getting fatigued. They're getting a little jaded and cynical about the work because they're getting tired and fatigued. They say things like to the people in the water, didn't someone teach you how to swim? Are you back here yet again for that Vicodin? Right? You hear it when you're at the, at, in the environments of our ERs and our hospital systems. You hear these, these statements that are cruel, unjustified statements that assume the worst in the people we serve rather than the best. And that's not driven from malice, largely. That's driven from, I think, a sense of a disconnect between those downstream rescuers and those raft builders um, and the scenario of unmitigating, unrelenting kind of need of people continuing to be in the water and not having a sense that they know what to do about it. So in this scenario, as these folks are burning out, 
they look up and they see their third friend, and she's further away from them, in the water, swimming, away. And to their dismay, they shout, where are you going? There are people here to save. And their friend shouts back. She says, as she's saving people, she's not pontificating like I am now. She's in the water doing the work. And she's saying, I know, I'm going to find out who or what is throwing these people in the water. I'm going to come back to this uh, parable in a second to actually speak about what I think the healthcare workforce needs specifically. I think we need more of that third friend, that upstreamist, not just the rescuer and the comprehensivist. But that parable is an important one, at least to give you a better kind of counterbalance to what I mean about the quadruple A. One of the... um, Sorry, I'm just went back one slide. There we go. What, what I'm getting at here is something I'm proposing at the intersection of performance management capabilities of the science of improvement uh, and the operations, the implementation science that's out there. Of population medicine, not population health, but population medicine, which is the purview of a lot of our healthcare systems, thinking about their patient populations, and then social determinants of health, the public health sector and other social services. As we think about the intersection of those three forces, at the middle of that is what I call upstream medicine. And specifically, what I propose uh, that we use in the, as a science of improvement is what I call upstream quality improvement. What does it mean to actually take the rigor and the science of QI and performance management um, and apply this to this intersection of these three things in a way that can meaningfully take that parable and transform it into, into reality? So the next slide. I mean, a little hard time with the clicker here. I'm going to point it at these guys here. Can I do that? There we go. Thank you. So um, I, I think upstream medicine is something that uh, is, is something I'd love feedback on, worth debating. Um, it's uh, it's a work in process as a conceptual model here, but uh, I, I wanted to give some background on the science to to make the effective pitch. At the first point here, which is that the social determinants of health matter to the triple aim and the quadruple aim. I think it's important to acknowledge what what's happening in the science out there. In a beautiful, uh, actually, uh, series that was just published in Health Affairs, a series of articles, uh, there's some interesting information that comes about now looking at cross-sector work. And I mentioned earlier that, you know, we, 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 there's a lot of waste, I think, that's happening uh, um, at the intersection of those, thank you so much, at the intersection of those sectors of healthcare and social services. And, and here's an example of actually a really beautiful analysis that, that looks at what cross-sector work, when you actually try to bridge those silos, does to improving community system-level kind of capital or social capital. Um, and you can see in this depiction over here, uh, the, uh, mapping out the density of relationships among organizations over time, looking at it uh, from 1998 to 2014, uh, an increasing density of uh, organizations and activities uh, uh, that contribute to dynamic social capital. What's interesting about this is that the methodology that these researchers used to define community social capital was then linked to um, something rather remarkable. The, in the communities at a county level that had more of that social capital, more density and robustness of activities, uh, those counties actually experienced lower mortality compared to others. This raises an interesting question right now at a, at a population health level. If we look at social capital itself, there's clear evidence that the ecosystems that we operate in, the robustness of not just the healthcare institutions, but the, the hubs of activity and health outside, really matter in terms of life or death situations. It's a remarkable kind of uh, set of research now that's, that's coming out to illustrate that um, as we think about improving the science of improvement in, um, in healthcare and in health, uh, it might serve us well to look at uh, experiences outside of our healthcare institutions, to step outside of our walls. Um, maybe next slide. So here's an example. Uh, this is the Free Library of Philadelphia. And in uh, Philadelphia, what, uh, what happens in the libraries is not uncommon uh, compared to what happens in ER settings of Los Angeles. Many people come in with unmet social needs or legal needs to these settings. And so in the Free Library of Philadelphia, what they had found, next slide please, was uh, that the library had effectively become a hub for health. Of the nearly six million in-person visits to the library in 2015, half a million uh, were for attendance to specialized programs targeting uh, health determinants, like housing and literacy programs. Effectively, what had happened was that the Free Library of Philadelphia, a library, that public institution, had turned into a hub for health. And it raises the question as we go to the next slide. If a library can be a health hub, what does it mean then for uh, other institutions, a school, a barbershop, a home, and for that matter, a hospital or academic medical center, right? I don't think we should assume that because we're in healthcare that we are a hub for health. 
I think we have to actually look outside of the walls of our institutions and realize that there are other examples of what it means to be a hub for health, and, many, and often, more often than not, it means addressing those social determinants. In healthcare settings and hospitals, we're not designed necessarily to be a hub for health. We're really designed to be a hub for sick care. So with that backdrop in mind here, let's look at some other science that's accumulating, um, looking at not just hubs for health, but what it means for social services themselves to be actually drivers of health. So we know, for instance, just backing up one slide, that if you can go to the slide before, thank you, that housing itself is a health intervention. So um, Lauren Taylor and colleagues um, have amassed some really beautiful research. This was uh, supported by the um, Blue Shield Foundation. And what they put out was information just chronicling the, the effect of various housing interventions um, to healthcare outcomes. Uh, so Housing First and Special Homeless Initiatives and the 10th Desktop Project and My First Place target various different populations from uh, those with chronic homelessness to those with homelessness and mental health needs to, uh, to my first place on the bottom, those in foster care. And what you can see here on the, on the right-hand side of the screen is that there's a tremendous amount of net savings, ROI, for the healthcare institutions. Uh, these, I, I pulled these out financially to kind of make the point that this matters to the bottom line. What's also apparent in these studies is that there is direct health benefits as well. So look at the 10th Desktop Project, for instance. What that project found was that among high-need homeless in Los Angeles, they had a 72% reduction in healthcare costs, with a positive ROI essentially defined as for every $1 invested in this uh, intervention, they found an, an estimate of $2 of savings in the first year and then $6 in subsequent years. If I came to you as uh, those of you who can invest in the stock market or have your retirement portfolios managed by um, brokers, if, and, and they came to you and said, I, we have a 6 to 1 ROI potential, would you like to invest? Chances are you'd probably think about it, if not say yes. Are we thinking about this in terms of the allocation of resources and especially QI resources to start to really chronicle this work? The next slide looks at food and nutrition as health interventions beyond housing. So we know, and this is particularly relevant given what may be happening in terms of decision making um, in, uh, in Congress, that the Women and Infants and Children program has demonstrated remarkable health savings. And this is, um, by some accounts, an underestimate, $176 million per year in net savings to the U.S. due to the provision of uh, low-income uh, subsidies to low-income women and their children. Home-delivered meals also has a direct benefit for older adults nationwide. There's been evidence that uh, just a 1% increase in meals delivered to the homes of older adults has been estimated to reduce Medicaid costs by over $100 million. Uh, a $25 annual increase in home-delivered meals per adult was estimated to be associated with a 1% decline in nursing home admissions. How often are we having these conversations in our, uh, in our quality improvement kind of uh, project teams or uh, within the healthcare systems that we operate in to talk about this evidence? It's out there, and it's, it's, uh, it's starting to amass in a really incredible way. The next slide. Um, lo looking at the impact of healthcare and social services, which I, def I describe as the integration is something I describe as moving upstream. There's been some great work recently about um, using a really profound uh, approach, the RCT approach. So Laura Gottlieb and, and her colleagues at UCSF um, put together a randomized clinical trial to provide social needs screening and then the intervention arm navigation support with really kind of low, uh, modestly trained navigators um, to uh, children and their families in primary care and urgent care settings in San Francisco. What they found was that at four months after enrollment, the number of social needs reported in the intervention arm decreased compared to the control arm. And what's fascinating here is that the caregivers in the intervention arm reported better health outcomes compared to the control arm. This is a brilliant example of taking, again, the signs of improvement of RCTs especially, and starting to demonstrate that, at the very least, self-reported health measures um, are improving and social needs are improving, and those things are not coincident. So we're, we're seeing, a, a, I think, a cusp, we're at the cusp right now of an incredible upsurge of upstream kind of awareness right now uh, in the science. And that's being driven right now by the awareness that payers are bringing to the table of saying we, we're interested in this issue. So um, partly because of the expansion of the Affordable Care Act and the expansion uh, of coverage to many millions of folks, many of whom have unmet social needs, and because of the drive towards value, uh, which have increasingly called on healthcare providers to become more financially accountable for costs of care for populations, payers are considering upstream factors. This is exemplified by the fact that uh, CMMI, CMMI, which 
we'll see what happens with CMI, but um, uh, through the RFP around the accountable health communities, we know that uh, there is a signal that was sent by CMS regarding social needs screening. $147 million essentially dedicated to this project to identify social needs screenings. In states like California, uh, large philanthropies have come together to move forward and say we want to mobilize resources in health and healthcare settings to talk about these issues. Medicaid, managed care organizations, and other health plans in the commercial sector are starting to talk about upstream issues in a significant way. And self-insured employers are talking about this as well. So let me just give you a quick snapshot, because if for no other reason uh, today than for this, that, that payers like Medicaid managed care organizations are starting to consider upstream factors, if for no reason than that, you should care about what's happening in the upstream space and the relevance of, of our work to that. So this is a case study synthesis that was supported by the Commonwealth Fund that um, I co-authored with um, Dr. Gottlieb at UCSF. And what we found in a, in a brief nutshell was that the Medicaid managed care organization leaders who are making investments in housing and food interventions, which is happening, what they said was that uh, at the highest level, C-suite leaders, that the investments they're making are, are ones that should be understood through the lens of the AAA. So, for instance, here's a quote, the next slide. One CEO actually said, we can't do the work we've been charged with and do it well unless we figure social determinants of health out. Another, um, another person, uh, COO, actually said, we address social determinants because we want to have high levels of consumer engagement and high levels of consumer satisfaction. There's a COO talking about <laughs> consumer satisfaction, patient satisfaction, and social determinants right, of a managed health care plan. This is an interesting signal that's out there. Yet another um, C-suite leader actually said that they don't go into the process of supporting housing interventions or food and security interventions in their care management arms through, or, or investments in managed care. They don't do that as if they're making grants. They do it as, as if they're making business investments. So the business case is starting to emerge right now that social determinants um, are a worthwhile investment portfolio for managed care organizations and health plans. And just to drive the point home from a slightly different perspective, the next slide. I mentioned earlier that I now work for a, a large employer in California, and it's important to look at the context of what, as a self-insured employer, as a payer for healthcare, what we're doing there. Um, and as a proof of concept, let me just tell you a brief story of what we did. Uh, I started this job in May of 2015, part-time in August 2015, a little over a year ago. I became the chief medical officer full-time. And the, the request was to help build a new health and wellness initiative for employees of this company who are largely farm workers in the Central Valley of California, largely immigrant Latino populations. Um, what, one of the opportunities that we, uh, one of the challenges we had was to take over really quickly the biometric screening campaign. Anybody, show of hands, uh, participate in a biometric screening through your employer or company or maybe even design them, right? So a large number of you have done this, and increasingly employers around the country do this. And largely what happens with these biometric screenings is that the data is collected, it gets aggregated, goes to an HR benefits person who does some planned benefit design, and then the data just kind of goes away. It's an incredible untapped opportunity, frankly, for looking at what's happening upstream in the worksite. And it's particularly, um, I think, uh, opportunity to look at what can be done to leverage the biometrics um, that are happening across the country to capture more insight into what's happening and the social determinants. So what we did was to screen our population. Nearly 90% of the employees uh, participated, which is unprecedented number for that region. Uh, we found many biological risks, including diabetes, at a prevalence rate of 11%. And then we looked at social risk. And as I was mentioning to Pierre earlier, when I put the RFP out uh, for vendors, I asked if anybody was uh, doing social determinant screening as part of their biometrics. And what I heard was crickets. <laughs> when I asked biometric vendors across the country, any of you screening for social determinants like food insecurity? Nada. So um, being a payer, I sent a signal to the market saying, actually, I would like that now. Um, anybody interested in screening for social determinants? And a vendor stepped forward. We provided them validated screening questions that look at financial food and housing insecurity. And what we found was phenomenal. 10% um, of our employees had both biological, psychological, and social risk. Um, just on its, on its own merits, uh, social determinants-wise, 30, up to 30% of employees actually said yes to one of those three things. Food, financial, housing, and security. I still have my job partly because, you know, you can imagine trying to do this at your workplace, right, and saying, um, hey, I want to, um, to the CEOs of these companies, saying, I want to screen for f financial insecurity. <laughs> what does that automatically kind of equate to for that CEO who's thinking about what this is going to mean? It's going to mean, you know, a request for higher wages or things like that. 
they agree to this because they realized that this, the, the information about financial insecurity and food insecurity and housing insecurity had a direct link to the health outcomes for those patients. And I was helpful in making that pitch. And what we've done now is to actually take some actions, as you can see in the bottom of the slide. So through on-site clinics that we directly manage, we're providing more targeted, more effective care management because we have that social risk information so we can segment and stratify our approaches with more precision. It's informing our community benefits and corporate philanthropy giving um, and the investments in building up the community around the worksite. Um, and it's also giving us insight into how to improve the evaluation, the risk models, and, the, and, the, and frankly, the value contracting that we're going out to local healthcare systems uh, to, to engage in. When I go to local healthcare systems um, who um, take care of those high, most high-risk patients based on biological and social risk, uh, it's, it's now possible for me to go and actually have a conversation around what value-added services and social care they can provide for those patients to help reduce costs. So payers are starting to care about this, and at the, the hub of this um, are the healthcare workforce. So I, I mentioned I'm a primary care physician first and foremost. And as I've been talking about moving upstream a lot of my work, I tend to get emails. This email I got over a year and a half ago now from a primary care pediatrician in a rural county in California. She said, I'm a primary care pediatrician, highest teen preg rate, meth addiction, high school dropout rate, many more issues. This, by the way, is verbatim what she sent me. Understand an upstream approach for years, try my best but falls by the wayside as I don't have resources. Patients lost to follow up, seeing over 30 a day, how to manage, would like to discuss. Um, there's two things that, that I saw in that email. One is, uh, first of all, this is a really busy pediatrician because she was so busy she couldn't even type in complete sentences, right? <laughs> Just, I mean, you can picture her between patient 27 and 28 kind of sending out this missive. And the second thing, of course, most importantly, is that this is a cry for help. That last line we'd like to discuss is really code for help. There is pain in that email, and I've seen it firsthand. I've been in similar situations at community clinics. The healthcare workforce is asking for help, and what... Um, what we shouldn't be surprised about is that the healthcare workforce is asking for help because we have made decisions as a country to invest more in healthcare rather than social services. So it should be no surprise then that um, in the U.S. compared to our peer nations, it's the healthcare setting that actually sees a lot of these unmet social needs and the manifestations thereof. And you have in that setting then in those healthcare systems in the U.S. a workforce that's ill-equipped to actually do anything about it. Next slide. Uh, in what I consider to be a landmark study, uh, again, done out of UCSF at the Center for Excellence in Primary Care, where uh, Tom Bodenheimer um, launched, uh, they did a survey of over 500 primary care clinicians. And what they looked at specifically was physician reports of burnout and then uh, physician reports of capacity of their system and uh, to address social needs. And what they found was that um, after multivariate analysis, the lower the perceived capacity of a clinic to address social needs, the more that the more that a physician felt like uh, she or he was not able to was not working in a system that could address those social needs. Not that the doctor had to be a social worker, but that there was no social worker. Period. The more there was that perception, that was it turned out to be the strongest predictor of clinician burnout. We're looking at many other factors for physician burnout and primary care provider burnout and healthcare provider burnout in general. But as I said in that parable of the upstream. Uh, it's important for us to acknowledge that part of what's driving burnout right now in our providers is this, and it's due to the lopsided investments. So whether it's uh, patients like Mr. M, whether it's payers, public and, and private, or whether it's providers, uh, it's clear that everybody is, is starting to realize that social factors matter, and I hope everybody in this room, at the, at the very least, if I've done my job effectively, I want to move the needle from wherever you're at, we're at in the beginning, to hopefully a much higher level of awareness that social factors matter. The, the issue is that we have what I call an upstream efficacy gap. That last slide that just kind of whizzed by showed that, um, in, among physicians at least, uh, surveyed about five years ago now in the nation, eight out of 10 physicians said that social needs of their patients were as important as medical needs. It's remarkable. But only one in five of those said they had any confidence to address them. That is an upstream efficacy gap. Our healthcare workforce doesn't know what to do about these issues, and it's leading to this gap between the knowledge and the ability to do something about it, and it's a profound, profound barrier to achieving the quadruple aim. If we don't integrate social determinants, we can't achieve the triple or the quadruple aim. And I think that actually what we'll end up doing is actually contributing to less equity in society as well, because we'll miss opportunities for capturing and lifting up people like Mr. M and populations like him. So I'm gonna, I could end right now, um, but you might be feeling um, like this. 
Yes? All right, good. So a show of hands, who feels like this right now? Good. How many of you actually felt before that social determinants of health was something that was interesting but not necessarily directly related to quality improvement work in a concrete way? If you felt like that in the beginning, I'm hoping now that, uh, by show of hands, how many of you feel like quality improvement and social determinants of health and the quadruple aim are intertwined? Inextri there you go. So I'm going to leave now. That was good. All right. right. We should not forget the consensus that just emerged right now. Please promulgate this through your work as well as through your water cooler conversations. Right? Talk about the fact that social determinants of health and quadruple aim uh, are in incredibly intertwined. Because if we don't acknowledge that foundational um, assessment, uh, then we can't get to this point. So if you feel frustrated right now, then I've done my job. <laughs> because now we should talk about how, not why. So let's, let's make this real by actually talking about a case study. So Mr. M, you're now deputized as all uh, healthcare providers in um, a hospital um, um, room, uh, in, a, in a conference in a hospital right now. It's, uh, it's the IHI Orlando Scientific Symposium Hospital. Uh, we've now admitted Mr. M. Uh, and I want to present this case study. So let's go through a little project together of creating an upstream quality improvement project, shall we? All right, so Mr. M, 51-year-old uh, uh, father of two, he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Uh, his last A1C level was 8.2, uncontrolled. Uh, he's borderline obese. Uh, he's on standard medications, metformin and glipizide for his uh, diabetes, and he has no known problems with medication adherence. No known problems with medication adherence. At the end of the last month, he was extremely dizzy. Uh, he nearly fainted ended up getting worked up in the ER, then was hospitalized. The diagnosis after an exhaustive workup was hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. So um, I present this patient to you right now. I think there's some interesting things we can learn um, about this. I invite all of us now in our, in our conference uh, to discuss uh, this patient case. Um, any thoughts about what could have led to his hospitalization? Popcorn and again. The coffee has had enough time to kind of percolate in, so let's go ahead. Anyway, what could have caused this hospitalization? No food, and somebody's already primed to think about social determinants. This is good. Who else? Anybody else? Medication mismanagement. Excellent. So uh, don't, don't let the fact that I've been priming you to think upstream, um, right, avoid a rigorous approach to this. Let's talk about medication mismanagement. And what, what other factors could have led to his hospitalization? You guys have seen these stories, I'm sure, in your own clinics or hospitals. Anything else? Poor understanding of diabetes that could have translated into poor adherence to lifestyle or medications, um, an insulinoma. Uh, there may be something else like biologically happening in his body that could have actually predisposed to lower blood sugar. I mean, there's a slew of things we should do. And of course, what we would expect of all of us in, in our healthcare settings and hospitals is to, is to go through a really rigorous understanding of um, root cause analysis. But what ends up happening is this. We've been primed, so somebody said no food right away. But if we step outside back into our home bases, right, into the healthcare settings that we work in or we help support or research, um, you, you see this. Now, before you get freaked out, before I violate any kind of social media, this is not, um, this is not a depiction of um, something grotesque. Uh, these guys are looking at their um, belly buttons. It's an uh, ancient Greek statue depiction of omphaloskepsis. Omphaloskepsis, belly button gazing, navel gazing. Right? When we go through root cause analysis and do a differential diagnosis, when we are in our hospital settings right now, we tend to actually use this approach uh, because you know, we do what we're used to doing. Uh, we look at the biological, and to a certain extent, we look at the lifestyle factors as well. So somebody said medications. It's a good point. Um, click one more. So medications. Medication mismanagement. It's a great, a great point. So at the individual constitutional biological level, there are certainly various things like medication mismanagement or biological issues that could cause this. We've also, you know, um, I think increasingly seen the ability for us to talk about poor dietary and exercise habits. So maybe he's not eating healthy enough or um, not exercising enough or understanding his diabetes, for instance. And that's good, but frankly, it's sophomoric. In other words, I think we can do better. I think we can expect better from ourselves and from our healthcare providers in general about how to be rigorous and making sure that we look at other living and working conditions at root causes as well. I think we can look past our navels and look up and actually realize if we really want to be rigorous about how we address uh, and identify root causes, we can look upstream and look at all these factors here. So what could have led to this? Well, let's talk about food insecurity, something that doesn't ha happen that oftenly, uh, as often in our healthcare settings when we think about case studies like Mr. M. Uh, 
So food insecurity itself is the inability to access food because of inadequate resources or finances. It's a, uh, an endemic problem right now in the nation. Um, it's interesting to look at food insecurity itself as the driver for diabetes, uh, it, irrespective of and even after, after accounting for obesity and socioeconomic status. Food insecurity itself, because of the physiologic disruptions to glucose metabolism, may actually be causing diabetes uh, in certain communities. So it's a remarkable, um, remarkably um, misunderstood and poorly understood uh, driver for a major health problem right now, and particularly um, because we're seeing that this is a driver, at least one significant driver, for preventable high-cost healthcare utilization. We're seeing, for instance, in uh, articles from Health Affairs in 2014 that uh, lower-income diabetic adults have a 27% increased risk of actually being admitted to the hospital at the end of the month due to low blood sugar. And it's usually not because of medication mismanagement per se. As I said, Mr. M was taking his medications. There was no known problems with medication adherence, right? Let's not blame the patient first. What was happening um, with Mr. M was that uh, he had made a choice in our case study that a lot of Americans do, especially in, in, as exemplified by this research, where uh, at the end of the month when the budget runs out, you choose between food, rent, and the medicine that you take. And often you actually take the blood sugar-lowering medication, but you don't spend it, and you spend it on rent, but you don't spend it on the food. Without the food in the belly, you take the blood sugar-lowering medication. It's not medication mismanagement. It's actually food mismanagement. And it's not something that may, may have a locus of control at the individual level. More than half of patients in a Philadelphia study actually were seen to have uh, high rates of food insecurity as well. So in the interest of time here, I, I, let, me, let me propose that for this case study for Mr. M, that we, that we start with um, a, a very high-level kind of approach to what it means to do quality improvement um, here, which is what I call the get ready, get set, go approach. So I, I propose that for Ms. Mr. M and Mrs. M and other at-risk diabetic patients, that effectively what we do is to first take our pulse, assess the maturity of our organization, of our clinic processes, of, an, of our environment, then get set, um, review those results, identify other kind of questions about population segmentation, stratification, which I'll illustrate in a second, and then finally go upstream and leverage the science of improvement to do exactly that. It's not rocket science or a new science that we have to apply. We just have to apply what we already have at our, tool, at our fingertips. And in doing so, I think we can improve our readiness and our capability to address these things. Um, without too much waste of time or resources. It's a recursive model that uh, I, I think uh, I've seen in practice and tried to apply. Um, this is a glimpse of the upstream readiness assessment tool that I've, I've discussed with colleagues at IHI uh, and others, and uh, definitely invite from the experts uh, in this room thoughts about the conceptual kind of validity and strength of this model. Um, I will say that in sharing this with practitioners and with uh, healthcare systems, especially on the West Coast here right now, it seems to be a, an effective way to at least, like here's an example of step five. It's a way to start the conversation, to at least say, okay, wh what are our strengths and weaknesses here? So for instance, on a, kind of a, using a Likert scale, this is a depiction of one question, um, step five. What, what is the scope of our social determinants interventions? How many of, of these um, domains have been well identified? And if we're putting in place a food insecurity intervention, have we done a good job in identifying the target population and so on? Um, there's other steps here as well, like looking at our, the robustness of our CQI infrastructure as well. And do we have a QI officer? Do we have robust systems to track? Um, are our leaders and staff actually trained in basic, basic methods for, um, for QI and so on? There's a, whether it's this or others, there I think needs to be uh, an approach to readiness assessments that, um, that to, to moving upstream that, that we would expect in doing PCMH accreditation or EMR implementation in our settings. When we looked at those business changes, we, we thought it was commonplace for us and necessary for, to do readiness assessments in our healthcare settings. If we're looking at social determinants, I think it's, it's not that far of a bridge to, to walk to say, let's do readiness assessments for social determinants as well before we move forward. And after we get ready, Next slide. Then we can get set, and it's a, a few quick questions that we can answer after we uh, walk through a quick analysis of our upstream readiness. So let's review the results, identify who our upstreamists are in the healthcare system, and this is an important point. Um, if we don't have somebody in the system whose job it is to routinely think about social determinist integration, then it's nobody's job. So somebody's got to have that in their JD, whether you call them the upstreamist, which is probably not what you want to do. <laughs> You can probably just keep their same job title, Chief Quality Improvement Officer or something. Somebody's got to have this job. And that's what I found in direct experience. And, and this is not just my own direct experience. It's looking at um, the vanguards that are out there, from talking to Jack Geiger to uh, Mitch Katz out in Los Angeles, 
to systems that have figured out how to move upstream over the years, it's clear that if you don't have an internal champion who has a specific job description, it's hard to actually sustainably make, a, make an impact. What I mean by this essentially is that, um, that, I alluded to this earlier with the upstream parable, that we have, there we go, that we essentially have a, an approach to our healthcare workforce that acknowledges that, look, we have uh, an overabundance right now of our partialists or specialists that are out there, and apologies to our, any specialists in the room. But, you know, the, the downstream rescuers, we have a lot of that. We've invested a lot of resources, and as others have spoken about, we need to redistribute that balance. Uh, but by 2020, I think some, there's estimates that, according to the American Academy of Family Practice and others, that we need uh, to expand the pool of specialists in, in underserved communities, but also primary care providers, the comprehensivists. I would posit that for every 30 or so um, specialists and comprehensivists, we need at least one upstreamist in that system to make sure that the system itself is routinely asking who or what is throwing the people in the water. Again, if we don't, then we will uh, miss an opportunity to learn from uh, what's worked in the past. Once we identify those upstream partners inside, can we identify um, upstreamists inside? Can we identify upstream partners outside? So if you go into any kind of hospital practice right now, um, they will tell you that if they want to get to, uh, a patient into the CD cardiologist in that uh, community setting, they know how to call the back office line to talk to the nurse manager who runs the clinic. And they know they have that number down. They have the three number, the other numbers that, that will work in case the first number doesn't work. They have the email address, the, the home, and the other. They've got the rigor down of how to actually get that patient to that, that, that specialist resource. We should expect the same level of rigor when it comes to actually naming an upstream partner. So for instance, for food insecurity and diabetes, can we name um, the office manager for the food bank right outside the walls of the hospital and identify them with the same level of specificity that we would expect um, in connecting somebody to a cardiologist? When we do that, then we can think about ways to approach data collection. Uh, this is work that was published by uh, colleagues at Ochin and, and uh, incredible work at thinking about how to take community-level data, uh, as you can see there, community vital signs data um, on your left, and patient-reported data as well, and optimize those two things to actually provide both point-of-care um, improvements and panel management, <clears throat> and then to draw that in, then finally to more effective uh, referral management for patients. And there's a lot of interesting work right now in developing conceptual models like this one for how to review upstream data collection, and increasingly um, t using that data as we're getting set to look inside our organizations and healthcare and think about what, it, what upstream data means for segmentation and for risk stratification. So I spoke to a, a good friend named Ruben Amarasingham who's at the um, Parkland Center for Clinical Innovation in Dallas, Texas. And what Ruben's done remarkably is to build up a predictive um, analytics engine for hospital um, issues, hospital readmissions and other uh, conditions for the hospital setting. But what he realized six or seven years ago was that uh, for those high-risk patients that they were trying to address, uh, they could optimize their predictive model by getting data from social service providers. And when they went to the social service providers like United Way and food banks in the Dallas area, uh, what the provider said was, we have, you know, we're using Excel spreadsheets and other really rudimentary referral management systems. So their team built up a very simple and nimble social service CRM software, in other words, a way to kind of track care management for their patients. And that technology was built on the same infrastructure as the predictive model for the hospital. And what effectively they've created is a social health information exchange. Social service providers and hospital systems talking to each other on the back end. And that allows now for looking at segmentation of risk, both by clinical determinants as well as by social determinants. And as Ruben has kind of nicely talked about, there's a different phenotype right, for risk. And so when we define risk, it, right now, most of us tend to lump it together just to say, okay, if we've identified risk based on biopsychosocial, that's the high level. But what do we do in terms of addressing our, um, how, how can we de decouple that and actually start looking at what it means for us to look at social risk and how to target and channel resources towards that separately from people who have primarily clinical risk. And finally, going upstream with quality improvement. For Mr. M, in our conference, can we uh, agree that after doing this analysis and, and segmenting our population and seeing that there is a pattern here of Mr. M and patients like him with food insecurity-related hospitalization, can we uh, launch a food RX? Let's, let's try to reduce admissions for that patient population by um, improving the way we screen for food insecurity. Let's improve that by 30%, shall we? The good news is we're at zero right now, so we're going to hit this. It's an early win. Um, will improve our confidence to address this, and let's reduce hospital admissions as well. There's validated screening items out there. This one has been endorsed uh, about a year, earlier this year by the American Academy of Pediatrics and others. 
This is a two-item validated screening question for screening for food insecurity. Um, we can integrate that operationally. We can look at other upstream risk tools that are out there. This is a free one that um, includes many domains from the Institute of Medicine that Health Begins has put out. We can look at other tools that are out there. So there are technology tools that screen for patients that help you find resources using Yelp-like databases for social services. There are even tools that actually start to do EMR integration and risk modeling. We don't have to wait any longer for, uh, we, we don't longer have to say to people, oh, we don't have the tool for that. Tools are now starting to um, emerge in a remarkable way. And finally, as we're, as we're looking at all of this work, this is a depiction of an operational workflow uh, that we can easily put in place to be able to screen for this, and this is what we've done in clinic settings. As we do so, we can look at the levels of kind of intervention and prevention. Um, we, there are bright spots that are out there, for instance, of how to work at a tertiary prevention level. We can look, for instance, at what it means to work in a hospital setting. One more slide. So in, in Ohio, hospitals have actually looked at food insecurity itself and created food pharmacies. And it's remarkable, next slide, to see what, that, what they effectively put together was a food pantry that they call a food pharmacy, and that's how their CFO writes it off. Right? It's a remarkable thing to actually see now hospitals starting to address food um, for improve, as an intervention for diabetics. I think if we can start to understand that quality improvement itself, the science of improvement, can, uh, is a toolkit that is is already among, amongst us and can be leveraged with small tweaks, um, and by doing so we can move upstream, we'll be ahead of the curve. Uh, we'll be in a situation where we're moving upstream using conceptual models that make sense, and frankly, next slide, realizing that, that what I mentioned at the beginning, um, we can start to avoid the waste that exists in these silos. We can minimize the waste that's out there in our, between our healthcare settings and social service providers, um, improve outcomes for patients like Mr. M, and start to actually do the, the work that's required of us right now because of patients like Mr. M. We, have, we don't have the luxury of waiting for uh, the upstream efficacy gap to uh, those in this room, for instance. If, if, if you don't, if we collectively don't quickly accelerate past that upstream efficacy gap and get more sense of confidence to address this, patients will suffer. Patients are suffering now. In other words, the call to action for today is move upstream and start thinking about ways as the nation's leaders in the science of QI to show us a path forward. Uh, and it's, it's only IHI, I think, that can do this in the way that uh, we expect at scale. Uh, and for myself and other primary care providers and operators on the front lines of healthcare every day and payers um, that I represent as well can say, when you do so, you'll have helped move us uh, so much further along. Uh, I'm not sure what the future is going to hold for the next four to eight years or beyond, but I do know that uh, together we can move upstream to achieve the quadruple aim. So thank you, guys. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Don Goldman uh, from IHI, and I was uh, asked, uh, actually I have the honor to uh, moderate a short uh, question and discussion period. I'm hoping that people will come to the microphones, which are somewhere there. There they are. Uh, and in the meanwhile, I, I have a, a, a quick observation and a question uh, to get us uh, into the scientific frame of mind. Yep. Um, uh, John Cadbury and Milton Hershey uh, some years ago uh, clearly understood exactly what you're talking about. So this is not right. something that we've just discovered. It's something we've forgotten. Right. Uh, they had paternalistic models where they simply created the infrastructure and the services to serve communities so that they would live healthy lives and be productive workers. Uh, what we're seeing from your presentation and in general is uh, almost a cacophony of great ideas and bright spots. Uh, in Boston alone, we have uh, a legal partnership to help patients, as you right. pointed out. We have a tax people. There are, one, there are over a billion dollars of wasted tax money every year because poor people don't know how to access what they have the right to have. Uh, there is the uh, health leads, and, and I could go on and on. What is your feeling about a, uh, and I'll use the word rigorous way, to sort out the wheat from the chaff and find those uh, programs that can be integrated into solutions that can spread uh, and have real impact. Uh, yeah, do, sure. you, do, you, do you have a sense of how we can uh, test, evaluate, and spread these things more quickly than we are? 
um, so, somewhat of a sense, but that, that's the brilliance of this opportunity right now, which is to get input from everyone in the room. I'll, I'll speak to what I think is an enabler. Uh, I mentioned before that there is a lack of performance management capability in the social service sector right now. Uh, what that really means is the lack of data uh, that, uh, that sometimes exists, um, or the lack of access to the data that exists, and the fact that we haven't necessarily bridged the gap to figure out how to um, uh, unleash that and bring that in for uh, finding new patterns, new insights. So right now, um, in, in a very concrete sense, in, a, in, a, in the Central Valley of California, when I work with social service providers and community-based organizations um, to say, look, we want to take the bright spots that we've seen, some medical legal partnerships, for instance, and we go to the, the local um, public interest law firms in the community, they're living kind of tooth and nail right now, right? They're, they're trying just to make sure that they meet the, their, their deliverables and they've been um, brought up in a funding kind of climate that has essentially only got them to um, report on the data that the funder kind of wants. <laughs> Sound familiar? Right? Not necessarily in uh, routine, systematic kind of approach to building capabilities for data management. So I, I think we need to look at the upstream driver for your question, which is how to build up um, performance management capabilities and support for the social service sector at large because there's um, a lot of untapped wisdom and insight, I think, from there. And once that happens, then I think that allows for a more effective um, uh, sorting uh, process where you can separate the wheat from the chaff. I, I think it's a pretty straightforward approach that, um, uh, in terms of the methodology. Um, this is not the first time we've had to ask the same question of other kind of domains. So, for instance, looking at primary care and behavioral health. Right? Um, there's a lot of information that's out there about bright spots for behavioral health. Uh, services and particularly behavioral health integration, mental health integration into primary care settings. Um, what have we done in the past to be able to address that? Well, we've looked at ways to screen, sift, create a standardized set of um, expectations and then uh, celebrate those ones that uh, have been effective and uh, try to disseminate those through learning networks. In other words, I think IHI is the perfect vehicle to, to be able to um, take the, the approach that has worked so well for other sectors to social services. Uh, I see a couple of people. I wish I could see your faces and identify you, but the light's <laughs> in my eyes, so please identify yourself. Okay. It's uh, Michael Fasher from Sydney, Australia. Thank you for a super start to the day. I want to row in your boat, but I want to respectfully suggest that you're not far enough upstream hmm. and would like to hear your reflections on the problem of trauma, intergenerational trauma, and the whole implications of adverse child experience as the yep. upstream issue. Uh, I appreciate that, and I appreciate the challenge as well. Um, I, I think we're, I'll, uh, I'll stipulate that I haven't gone further upstream. I think actually one of the big questions, uh, I, I've spoken in the past to Jack Iger, right, about uh, just wisdom from, uh, from his experience in this space. Uh, as you know, Jack um, has played a huge role in advancing social medicine in the U.S. over the past 60 years. Uh, Jack says that the next 10 years are not about the social determinants, but should be about the political determinants of health. <laughs> so I, I think if we're really going to kind of challenge and move upstream, we should acknowledge that maybe we should be looking at uh, the socio-political and not just the socio-economic um, determinants of health. But having said that, to your very specific question about trauma, I think there's a lot of good um, evidence that uh, through the ACEs or other approaches right now, we can use that to identify um, through the life course when there has been experience of trauma. The question, I think, operationally for me, and this is where the science of improvement implementation science becomes effective um, as, a, as a toolkit to address this question, is what does that mean for me in terms of what I do uh, in terms of trauma-informed care right, and resilience uh, building? Uh, we're trying this right now in the Central Valley. Um, migratory trauma, for instance, is a generally unrecognized uh, form of trauma, so immigration-related kind of trauma. Uh, by some studies, 27% of um, first-generation Latino um, migrants um, have ex adults have, have reported significant trauma during the migration experience, and uh, then about 5% of those actually report PTSD. Um, what, uh, excuse me, 20% of those report PTSD, so net it's about 5% of, of immigrants have PTSD just from immigration, right, in the, this particular Latino population. Very, that's one report I just cited. There's not enough out there. So I, I think we're at a point right now where there's a cacophony of information about uh, trauma, and uh, the role of adverse childhood experiences is out there. The question at hand right now is how to translate that knowledge of uh, the importance of this to inform screening, but more importantly, to do something about it. And that's something that we need help with. The science of improvement needs to think about operationally. How do I look at the feasibility of integrating trauma-informed care and PTSD screening into clinics that I manage? We need help. Okay, same, same microphone. 
Uh, Uma Kodigal, Cincinnati Children's. Thank you for your fantastic presentation and your work going upstream. I loved most of your conversation, but I had a little bit of an alarm when you talked about a healthcare industry that has ballooned and is incapable of efficiency or effectiveness, presuming to solve the problem for the social sector. So I have this imagination of your, mm. you know, you started off with a little cart with a bunch of food for people and called it a food pharmacy to now imagining that, yeah. that the social sector problems would be solved by healthcare. So what I was looking for was probably a more respectful partnership and much more capability building than thinking that healthcare going upstream would now take on more, given how bad our track record is of either being effective yeah. or being efficient. I, I think it's a fair point. So if, if I, uh, let me clarify then uh, the point that I wanted to make to that. A, I think that there is a, um, we're paying the price right now of an anemic inf investment in upstream sectors. And I think we're seeing that in healthcare and that's driving a lot of um, pain and suffering and uh, inability to achieve the triple aim in healthcare because of that, you know, we're, it's coming to us in healthcare. I think B, um, part of what, because of the separation that's occurred, because of those investments, uh, we have um, we have grown in a system to essentially take public health and healthcare and keep them entirely separate. And so, because of that, we take a navel-gazing type of approach to understanding what it is to do root cause analysis, and we we're essentially missing opportunities to to mitigate suffering. Patients like Mr. M keep on coming in because we don't have a lawyer there in the first place, right? Like, in other words, if if we don't look at this with the same level of rigor, healthcare itself can't be more effective by just, if we don't look at social determinants, period, full stop, right? For me, healthcare itself has to include an analysis of social determinants for your patient population. I think there's no, uh, there's no doubt in my mind uh, from my own experience about that. But I do, to your point, uh, and I'll, I'll try to be more respectful in the way I kind of articulate this, we can't expect healthcare itself to then now uh, fill the void that has been created because of decades of underinvestment in the social services. Hence my kind of first point about this in general. How do we improve civil society and how do we improve investments in performance management and resources for upstream sectors, not healthcare? I, I think we need, I, I'm, I'm trying to walk and chew gum at the same time. Right? That, that it's, it's okay for us to acknowledge that the healthcare situation is dire partly because of the gaps in social determinants, understanding, and efficacy, while also stipulating and, 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 and say we need to improve that. But at the intersection of healthcare and health, I think we can do a better job of essentially saying it's, it's about both. It's not about any longer the choosing. Uh, it's about leveraging the resources and the, the vast resources that we have compared to our friends, even though we waste them. <laughs> Right? We have far more resources than our brethren in the social service sector. Let's optimize what we're doing. Let's avoid waste in our endeavors. And let's do that especially by um, helping to work across. I think we can reduce waste by, frankly, spending more time with a lawyer or a social service agency or food bank is one great way to at least start to de demonstrate opportunities to reduce waste. We hope you enjoyed this WIHI special edition podcast, Moving Upstream to Address the Quadruple Aim, featuring Rishi Manchanda, and recorded live on December 5th, 2016, at the Scientific Symposium, held in conjunction with IHI's 28th Annual National Forum in Orlando, Florida. A reminder that Dr. Manchanda's presentation slides can be found on IHI's website, Look on the homepage of IHI.org for a link to this WIHI program. I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for listening.